0: Orville
1: Roach. Oh, boy.
0: Uh, I, instead of running
1: the uh, the football clip, which gets my blood going 365 days a year typically, I'd rather focus on the tip-off of the NBA regular season tonight. And my friend, uh, the New York Knickerbockers tipped off about two minutes ago, and they're already down 36 to 1. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> and uh Derek Rose has pulled torn his a c l joaquin Noah has strained his shoulder
1: oh man, oh man, I mean oh boy we gotta let's run our normal
3: our normal
2: Go ahead and talk about your boys for a little bit. Well, let's and first welcome our listeners into Walt Rochon Recovery six four six five six four ninety nine zero nine is the number.
3: How about them, Cowboys? Yeah! <laughs> yeah!
2: this, uh. this was their bye week, but I would like to um, <clears throat> share some um, some information. With our listeners, I think especially our Bay Area listeners, this will be very important. Oh, boy.
1: (laughs) Oh, boy.
2: Let me know when you're ready. Oh, let's hear it. Big trade just announced.
1: (laughs) Here it is. Hit us with it.
2: Uh, the Niners uh, have announced that they have traded with the Cowboys for the services of one Tony Romo, <laughs> and in exchange, the Niners have given up their first-round pick and blame blame Gabbert to the Cowboys. So there you have it.
1: Oh well, great. Great. How about that? Uh, In all honesty, even though I don't understand what the separation is between the coaches and the front office around trade deadline, where coaches will not own any news that's out there about shopping potential players or whatever, uh, even disregard them as completely erroneous, but the leak is out there that Mm -hmm. these players are being shopped And that's coming from the front office. So I've never understood that politic in the NFL with that, that disconnect between the front office and the coach. You'd imagine if the coach doesn't want the players distracted about them being potentially on the trading block, that they would be in lockstep with the front office about that. And like, go ahead and shop them, but keep it quiet. Mm -hmm. Um, and maybe there's only so much you can do to keep it quiet. Maybe it's the other teams that are leaking. Oh, they, this team contacted us about Mm -hmm. whatever, but, um, the two reported on the trading block for the Niners are Joe Staley uh, and Torrey Smith. And so, apparently, a bunch of teams have inquired about both.
2: Um, I'm sure Seattle's one of them for Staley.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised because they lost a lot on yeah, their line.
2: quarterback's going to get killed.
1: hmm And um, a lot of people interested in Torrey Smith, teams that already haven't established number one, mm-hmm. but looking for a real kind of fast number two. And I actually... Most of the time around the trade deadline, I don't like to see maybe players like a Joe Staley go, who've been with the team since they were drafted and kind of a mainstay. But you also feel that, like these players are not going to get anything out of this season, and you'd rather see them go and compete or contend. Tory Smith, I don't care one way or the other, he's locked up in a contract for another two years after this. Um, we're paying him 40 or $50 million, but there's no point in having him on the field with mm-hmm. no quarterback. So yep. draft picks that we can swing and miss on.
2: Build build more draft picks. There you go. <laughs> um, doesn't look like our calling line is up. Mr. Producer.
1: Oh, not yet. Not okay. yet.
2: Um, that's all I got.
1: That's all I got. You got You, you want to drop any note on basketball before we move forward? Football season will come to an end, and we will have to give updates about basketball.
2: New York just that yeah it, it started today and um it should be an exciting season um and my hope is that the Warriors will make it to the finals and lose again <laughs> perfect for all you Bay Area fans out there well said
1: <clears throat> well said all right well that's all I got interesting uh, topic today that maybe some Bay Area fans, a nice segue into maybe what some Bay Area fans out there are
2: experiencing,
1: fans of the 49ers.
2: Let me put out a couple of disclaimers before we go start in on our topic.
1: Uh One
2: of them is written in our show description. We are not doctors. Um, So we're not going to get deep, deep, deep. Second is a couple of things we're going to joke about. But it we are in no way going to be implying that depression in itself is a joking matter. Um, but there are times when, you know, the old saying, if you're know, if you if you're not laughing, you're crying.
1: Very true.
2: Um, and for some of us... And sometimes it, you're uh, doing both. <laughs> yeah, you're doing both. <laughs> and I'll be talking about a couple of things where you'll get an idea of what I mean by that. But let me first start. So our title is "Depression and Its Impact on Recovery." Let me first start with a daytop story.
1: We love stories. We love story time. Um, Are we
2: going? Is this old school story or more modern? No, this is uh, old school.
1: All right, we're keeping it old school.
2: You know, uh, daytop did not take well to the adaptation of. mental health inserting itself (laughs) (laughs) into the treatment paradigm.
1: Yes, well documented. Okay. Well documented.
2: And uh, I was privy, fortunate or unfortunate, to um, a meeting that was held at the Promethean Institute on the border of Pennsylvania and New York on the backside of New York State, about 45 minutes to an hour away from the Swan Lake Clarksville facilities where they were discussing the upcoming insertion of mental health professionals into the daytop staff team. Okay. Okay. Um, Did you date stamp this story? Um, Circa... 88? 80, 89. 89? Circa 89. All late, right. late, late 1989. All right. And... Present were Tony Gelamino. I'm naming names People may not know but I'm just going to name the names that I know Tony Gelamino, Eddie Hill, Felix Arroyo Richie Falzone um, uh, Wayne Butler was there Um, Who else, who else, who else Benny Cuebus was there so I can think of right now. So the purpose of this meeting was to discuss the process of how they were going to, you know, because this, this was brand new. Brand new. Okay. But it was, you know, it was knocking on the door, and basically they were having no choice but to accept this reality. So all of these guys, as the Monsignor used to lovingly call them, are Neanderthals. You know what we mean by that. Right. So, I mean, they're old school guys. and come you know, from an old school mindset. Exactly. And... So this, you know, bringing in this mental health and this psychiatry and psychology and aspects into the treatment paradigm was not something they took very easy. And my goodness, um, before this meeting was held, the, the persons, there was, I think it was two or three of them, visited the various facilities. Okay. You know. We'd we'll do a walk through and look about and just to get an idea of where they were going to be going to, you know, interact with clients and so on and so forth. Here was my main takeaway: they spent the whole meeting making fun of these people. Wow! Well, and and I and I don't mean in the night. I mean in the most terrible uh, saying some things not to be repeated on air. Some something you can't repeat any of it on air. Some of it, you know, you were laughing so hard tears are coming down your eyes. But I mean, it was terrible, terrible, terrible and um, so they, they didn't even spend any time talking about a plan of how this was going to go down and you know, immerse them. They, they, they were just so resistant to it that they just spent their whole time making fun of these people. Sure. So eventually it happened. They came, they introduced themselves, and the process of Daytop moving from a purely psychosocial treatment model was now adding into it a mental health component. Okay. And if I may say so myself, long, 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 long overdue. That's just the reality. We can look back now and say, wow, it was so long overdue because we have now the benefit of time to realize of course people were coming in with, you know, that dual diagnosis and mm-hmm. co-occurring issues right. and so on and so forth. We just didn't, you know, no one even thought about it. We didn't identify it as that, you know, look, you know, you're depressed, you know, you know, you know, you'd smacked upside your head, get over <laughs> it, let's get moving, you know, right. get kicked in the rear, you know, let's let's get going now. That's what it was. So um, safe to
1: say, and I'll interject here real quick, that whomever was the, uh, kind of the pioneer of proactively involving mental health professionals was a little ahead of their time, Ben. Seeing I,
2: maybe oh. what not everyone else... Okay, let me burst that bubble, unfortunately. But can we agree that sometimes it matters not how something comes to pass or why? In the end, the fact that it comes to pass is what's important? Sure. Okay. So it was not... It, this wasn't a... um an epiphany that someone had of saying, "Hey, let's let's move forward. Let's move our treatment processes forward into a new dimension." Okay. No, this was about money. Meaning that not not that when I say that I mean that uh, in order to cade money and right. so on and so forth, mental... there were now new uh, demands being made. Sure, on, on treatment providers, which included, hey, you got to incorporate on staff. mental health professionals into your staff teams. So okay. that was the driver behind it. I, I cannot say, and if someone is aware, I, I would absolutely stand corrected. But from where I sat and from what I heard and putting my one and one and two and twos together, that it was a uh, a fiscal driver. A fiscal reality, let's call it that way, okay. that drove that decision. And okay, but the the end result is is that as they got, as the pro, mental health professionals got more and more immersed into the therapeutic community, uh, more and more people started to receive the type of counseling that was beneficial. Okay. Okay. So here we are. 2016 and we're now grown (laughs) we've matured we're we're beyond that we're mature and responsible now and um, mental health treatment in the context of the TC is you know old hat so the question however of depression and its impact on recovery will never be old hat it first
3: the,
2: the the question first arose for us here in California with the adolescents
0: yeah now yeah. we
2: we were stocked and staffed with mental health professionals cuz it was just required by law in treating when you were working with adolescents so it made no difference whether you know they didn't have any mental health issues or not we had those professionals on staff sure um but what it allowed was that we started to realize that, wow, more and more people were coming into treatment that had mental health issues. And we even got to the point where we were able to treat people who did not have substance abuse problems but had mental health problems only. And then we reached a point where we had the chicken and the egg problem. And this this more uh, from what our professionals taught this was more prevalent on the adolescent side is determining whether or not the mental health issues, whatever they were, were being exacerbated by drug use or drug use was just being used as a means to deal with the mental health issues.
1: Yeah, chicken chicken and the egg kind of thing right, right, and trying right. to sort out
2: which is right. driving which or if right. either – so, I would say, yeah. looking back, it was probably sixty five thirty five sixty five percent. It was once we got once they got off, once we got them off drugs mm-hmm. and they were with us for sixty to ninety days, the mental health issues kind of subsided, and we could say, okay, it was you know the drugs were kind of the driver sure, behind the sure. the mental health issues that were showing up presenting themselves yeah and then the other 35% we realized okay they really got some some issues going on here yeah. <laughs> right so now just dealing with um with adults one of the things we wanted to go over well let's first let's first put out there cuz we don't we don't treat you know all sorts of depression and there's you know there's a few different types of depression and we have exclusionary criteria because there's some stuff that's deeper and more serious than others. Right. So let's just – just for the record, let's just name the different types of depressions that are out there and then the ones that we kind of see, the most common ones that we deal with. Okay. Okay. And then there's a couple that, that we just made up on our own. <laughs>
1: uh-huh,
2: yes, I've heard that. There's uh, There's one you're excited to present, so – Okay, so the, the most popular one, but it, it's not the most common one we see it's just say in, in society, societies, major depression or major depressive disorder, and usually this is the type that you feel depressed most of the time for most days of the week. Persistent depressive disorder, so this is something that has lasted for two years or longer. Um, bipolar disorder which used to be, or sometimes called manic depression, used to be called manic depression. So this person would have mood swings that range from extreme highs, the up mood, to very low, the depressive periods. And when you're in the low phase, you'll have symptoms of major depression. You guys out here probably don't see this one too often. Seasonal affective disorder, sad. Uh, back east it's more common or in areas where where the seasons are more defined yes (laughs) so uh, especially when you get the shorter days in the winter gets dark at like 445 you know what I mean so it's you know uh, mostly during the winter months days grow short people get less and less light and then it typically goes away in the spring and summer psychotic depression so that's people with uh They have symptoms of major depression and psychotic symptoms. So obviously we don't treat that. What else we got? Peripartum or what probably most people know is postpartum depression. Yeah. Yeah. So that's women who have major depression in the weeks and months after childbirth. Um, obviously we've heard about some incidents that have happened in society over the last 10 years of women who have suffered with that and have done terrible things to their children and newborns uh, here's an interesting one um, I will do my best to refrain from making any comments that can be used against me in, in, in a future kangaroo court of law pre-menstrual dysphoric disorder huh. Wow. PMDD yeah uh, usually just comes around at that, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> right. Rears its ugly head at that time. Indeed. Those times. Uh, here's a good one situational depression. Uh, usually called, you know, it's event related. Could be a death in the family, uh, a divorce, losing your job, so something you know significant. Okay. Sure. And the last one that we have is uh, atypical depression. Not too common. Different from the persistent sadness of typical depression. Is considered to be a specifier, whatever that means. That describes a pattern of depressive symptoms. Not too common. So, which what do we see mostly in our treatment paradigm? We see uh, bipolar. Yeah. Um, That's probably the most popular one. Um, And maybe a tie between the major depression and the persistent depressive disorder, meaning so someone who's been suffering from depression for long, for an extended period of time, over two years. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And you think that uh, we see bipolar more often than...
2: I would say that one is probably at the, at the most prevalent. Yeah, most prevalent. Okay. Based on information at hand.
1: Sure. Uh, sure.
2: Uh, and how long the medication line is.
1: Yeah. Right. Well. And <laughs> and what's funny, um, and this is just probably common to to the field in general. When the field. The re-
2: on, let me just say the reason I wouldn't put major depression up there is because oh, we have a lot of people who suffer from depression would we characterize it as a major depression? Right. Um, I don't think so, but go ahead.
1: Uh, yeah. And I don't, I don't necessarily think so either. Um, but the term bipolar or what bipolar is. You hear that thrown around mm-hmm. loosely, um, and too loose, t- too loosely. And a lot of that, sometimes just stems from the clients um either what they've been told about it or you know, maybe what they believe how that's defined and how that might pertain to them. You hear them kinda giving themselves
2: this diagnosis and, uh, up and, and down the hallways. And I think if people actually knew that actually it all it was is was, was a I don't know what they would call it, an update in terminology. I mean why I don't know, but it was man called man depression before. Right. Now, that, I don't know if because they thought the term manic sounded too, you know. Maniac? Uh, yeah, too <laughs> maniacal. Right. You know what I mean? Like, can we, is, can we find a, a, a more soothing term for it? So they said bipolar. Well, without having any knowledge, if I hear the term bipolar, I'm putting two words together, bi. So that means two. Yeah. Polar. Okay, so that's. You know so that means Extreme, there's two extremes yeah. okay hot and cold north and south okay so does that mean the person goes in between both of them okay so manic depression or someone who was a manic identified as a manic depressive you wouldn't know that there were any sides to it you know that there was a high and a low okay they would just call it a manic depressive and okay well what does that mean well until there's someone explained to you, well, a person who's diagnosed as manic depressive experiences periods of what's mania, mania the legal yeah. right. But they also experience a, experience the opposite right of that. Right. Um so maybe that's was the driver behind changing the term to identify both sides of the experience. Sure. Okay. But the end result is that you sometimes get people for whatever reason, self-diagnosing themselves and saying, "Yeah, I'm I'm bipolar," sure, you know, because I feel good yesterday and I don't feel good today, sure, or or yeah, or I'm, even I'm up and down, I'm all around,
1: throwing that diagnosis out amongst themselves. Mm-hmm. Oh, that person's totally bipolar, and mm-hmm. even if it's said in in jest or in joking, you just hear the term a lot. It's Catch term. Now. And the thing that I find interesting or intriguing is a lot of um, clients in in all various spectrums here in facilities or wherever the wherever they may be um actually the vast majority of them don't have a super good understanding or or grasp of the definition of what bipolar is mm-hmm. so i've i've witnessed this as a staff member and seen in a group somebody can maybe it looks like they're touching both ends of that spectrum within the same group Mm -hmm. uh they're happy one minute and very sad the next Mm -hmm. um and don't understand that the the criteria for bipolar uh and i I believe two weeks is maybe considered a cycle i might be getting the the time frame wrong but i believe it's two weeks this is dsm criteria Mm -hmm. is that an individual who does suffer with bipolar disorder will go through these bouts over weeks at a time so Mm -hmm. a couple of weeks of severe depression mm-hmm. followed by a couple of weeks of the opposite of whatever that may be. And that it, it has nothing to do with instantaneous change, right. but yeah, someone, Oh, you were laughing and joking at dinner a second ago and now you're over in man that that person's bipolar. And mm-hmm. it's, like, that's not even the way it works. Mm-hmm. But like you said, catch term, or it's just something that's thrown, thrown around kind of loosely.
2: Mm-hmm. So, when a person does enter treatment and we determine that you know they either are experiencing or have experienced depression, we know that we have to get, they have to get to the root of that, and the root of that could mean determining whether or not this is a chemical imbalance related thing. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Or is this a, um, a trauma rooted thing, um, a life experience rooted thing? So let's put to side, put to the side, the chemical imbalance part, because if there's a chemical imbalance, there's a chemical imbalance and there's usually only one way to deal with that. Okay. Sure. Right. Um, so medication right so what let's put that about. one to the side pretty much all the others are require some buy-in to the to the by the client meaning we can't help you unless there's some coming forth of information you know what's it what's the traumatic event experience what's because so, our goal is to get to what what the root, the roots of this uh depression is, what's causing it, what's driving it, and seeing if there's a way through uh psychotherapy and if necessary if necessary medication to assist. I always said the best the best psychiatrists are the ones who mandate and require, remember we're putting chemical imbalance to the side mm-hmm. that mandate and require that if they're gonna prescribe you medication that you also go to therapy have to go to therapy yeah and they work hand in hand
1: completely agree
2: because they understand that there is a psychological thing going on here that needs to be addressed, but that we can deal with the physical effects of the psychological thing through some medicine, yeah, in the interim, yeah. but the ultimate goal is let's get to the root of the psychological thing so that the medicine thing doesn't have to be a lifelong thing. And just we ignore, you know, we ignore the psychological aspects, never look at them, never deal with them, never face them, you know, never analyze them. Right. We'll just take the medicine and move on.
1: Yeah. Which is, and this is actually spoken a lot in the, about in the treatment setting And in many different facets, not just this one in particular, but you hear the analogy used all the time about the Band-Aid, the Band-Aid. And like you just said, looking to get to the root of the problem as well, because there are an infinite amount of Band-Aids. Uh, the one most prevalent to people that come to us are the drugs mm-hmm. and the alcohol, mm-hmm. which are temporary solutions to what we are identifying right now as a problem in our life. Mm-hmm. Um, but getting to the root of said problem versus just masking how it's making you feel in the moment mm-hmm. um, is what the long-term goal should be every time. And I agree with what you said about the two going hand in hand, that the the medication is not the solution or the means to an end, so to speak. It is um, a process or a tool to be used in concert with us working through this to try and see where this all originates from. And so we can, we can patch the foundation, so to speak, Mm -hmm. which, you know, will then blossom into other things.
2: In the, in the old days of uh, day top, and when I say the old days, by the way, I always mean my old days, not the old, old days of when I wasn't around on day top. So I'm talking late 80s, early 90s. <clears throat> right. Those are my old days. Um, so you claim.
1: But so anyway, I claim, well. <laughs> so I claim.
2: Um, the, the manner, you know, if someone, you know, either had a, a, a depressive affect or they verbalized it. The manner in which we as peers um, dealt with that um, I would I mean at least in my peer, I would say it was still respectful, still dignified, still with care uh, and concern, mm-hmm. um, but I, I have to admit it was with low tolerance for uh long term um, um, not long term you know beating around the bush.
1: Sure. Long okay. Describe
2: it. Yeah. Okay. Long-term deflection, so but, to speak. Yeah. Or... We wasn't going for that. We we wanted to know um, we were uh, sympathetic to what was what you were experiencing and how you were feeling. Um. And but we what we wanted was or we wanted you to come forth with. Where was this all emanating from? Mm. Mm-hmm. And you know, sometimes we we've said it so many times on this show. Uh, a lot 90% of what we do we can't do unless someone tells us shares shares information correct with us and some of the information is you know dark secrets dark right. secrets and be as whatever you know as it may uh w- without that information coming forth then we can't then apply the necessary uh like you said patches Mm-hmm. To uh, move past those those experiences, so someone doesn't have those feelings anymore. And we always emphasize that if if someone has experienced trauma, whatever the the cause of the trauma may be, you cannot change what you have experienced. Correct. But you can change how you feel about the experience. You follow me on that? Yeah. You can't change what you've experienced yeah it's happened right it's happened but you can change how you feel about it right so that it no longer controls your life yeah yeah and yeah so a person who sense. is feeling depressed over a thing a circumstance a situation that that they've experienced um we want to get them to a point after we after they can share it we can look at it, analyze it, put it in its proper perspective, no mm-hmm. matter what it is. We mm-hmm. put it in its proper perspective, even if that perspective is raw and and, and mm-hmm. as real as it gets. okay. Um, we we got to put it in its proper perspective and then step by step move to a place where this is no longer going to dictate what goes on in my life, how I feel about myself. And don't forget that one. How I feel about myself. Yeah. How I feel about myself. It's always going to come full circle. It's always going to come back to that same thing. How I feel about myself. So if if we can't, while, while we have you, while you're with us for whatever length of time, if we can't get underneath what's driving the depression,
3: mm-hmm.
2: okay, and you then are moving onward and outwards. And, you know, just moving tr- on with your life, transitioning out to your different phases and what have you. Yeah. Um, But we haven't gotten underneath that. It's just a setup for future failure at some point. Right. At some point. We got to get to it. Yeah, I like the um,
1: analogies are good to, to put things in broader perspective for folks. But I've heard this one used in um, – I appreciate how tangible it is, but if you look at a house
3: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and there's a, a crack in the foundation, mm-hmm. let me ask you as a homeowner, if there was a crack in the foundation of your home, how would that manifest itself in the home itself? Walking in the front door, how how might that manifest itself? Are you going to start to see like tiles come up or how does a crack in the foundation, what's the trickle? Trickle up effect. So to
2: speak. you see cracks in the walls. Okay. Maybe f- disruptions in the floor pad. You know, floor. Sure. You know, mm-hmm. raised floor, lower floor, cracks in the floor, depending on what kind of flooring you have. Right. Um. So you'll you'll see various things in the inner structure start to be offline.
1: Okay. So I look at the client as the homeowner, so to speak. Right. And you continue to call out floor people, wall people, paint people general contractors to you know, there's cracks in the wall, can we get that fixed? Mm-hmm. Hey, the floor over here, can we get that and you're and you're continuing to patch up all these things that are happening, but you refuse to ever let any contractor you bring into the home go down into the basement to check to see if there is a fundamental problem going on which is causing all all of this all right. of this expense that you're having to incur over the years to fix different things that continue to cycle and come up mm-hmm. is is the until you are okay with whomever it may be coming in and saying, yeah, you know what, let's go, let you go under the house, take mm. a look at what's going on and we get that crack fixed. It's going to be continuous maintenance on things that are all caused by a, a source until you can get to that issue.
2: So Let me see if I understand you correctly. What you're saying is, You want to go down into my crawl space and look at my foundation. (laughs) That's exactly right. No, no, no one goes into that crawl space. (laughs) Right. As a matter of fact, I have a lock on the crawl space door to make sure no one goes into the crawl space. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Well, they say, sir, I'm just saying that, you know, all of this may be caused by something that's going on in the crawl space. Right. Well, you're not going to my crawl space. Get your overalls, your coveralls and everything on. You're not going in (laughs) there. Yeah, that's right. But at some point, as you so eloquently stated, if we want to fix the problem, someone, someone has to garner and earn the trust of that person. That's right. To be allowed into that crawl space. And that is a, a treasured trust if you're allowed in there and the environment is created that the person can start to share what it is may be at the root or driving um, these feelings that they have of depression that are controlling, dictating, uh, overwhelming them or have been dogging them for years. And even if People have been on medication um, for these uh, feelings. As you stated, the medication does one thing. We're in the business of not treating the symptom, but getting to the root. That's right. Root cause. Um, Just like we say, when you come to us and if you have a drug problem, Very rarely will you hear that disgust in a treatment environment because one thing we try and make clear is that the, drugs, the drug issue just lets us know that, that it's just a symptom to us, just a symptom that there's other things going on. You just happen to choose meth, heroin, mm-hmm. or heroin. <laughs> as it's, it's, as alcohol, it's known in some streets, or alcohol, or what, what cocaine, what have you? You just, you just chose that as your means of medicating. So now, although you might be on medication that's approved, prescribed, legal, okay, short of a chemical imbalance, and we disclaimed that in the beginning, putting that to the side. Because that becomes a that's a genetic that's you know thing that's different mm-hmm. okay um, if we only stick with the medication then what we're not doing anything right we're not doing anything and it's 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 funny how that applies across the board um I'm not a good example because I've I've I can't use myself because I've I've exhausted all means and until they perfect disc replacement therapy, I'm not going to be a uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm not going to be a guinea pig for for anyone. Um, but I mean, it's like uh, you know someone who has a bad knee, you know, and it's been dogging them for ten, fifteen years, and and, and the orthopedic surgeon tells them, look, you know, you got two choices. You're going to continue to, you know, take anti-inflammatories or pain meds for the rest of your life, or we can replace, you know, give you a knee replacement.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You know what I mean? So um, we can fix the, get to the root of the problem because you have your knee joint, you have no, no more, uh, what's it called?
4: Uh, cartilage. Cartilage. Left. Yeah.
2: We can fix it. So it's the same, same premise, same analogy. If if we get the information that we need. The, you know Whatever it is that's been the driver, we can work with it and work to get that person to a better space, get them to a better space where they can live, and that is no longer impacting their lives. I can't overemphasize that. When I talk to the clients, it's all I say. Goal is to get you to a point where whatever issues that you may have, whatever they may be, mm-hmm circumstances, experiences, feelings, whatever they may be, that they no longer will dictate what happens from this moment moving forward. We're going to overcome them. We're going to resolve them. We're going to address them. We're going to meet them face on, power through them if we have to. Or we may, we may have to accept them and deal with that. There's nothing we can do about it and just accept it yeah and as a result feel what we feel about it a lot of times it's the refusal to accept something that we've experienced or something that has occurred something that has happened don't want to i don't want to face it don't want to touch it don't want to deal with it but yet i'm walking around feeling bad down in the dumps Going back and forth, feeling good one week, feeling down the other week. I should. Uh,
1: I'll add, and we both we both know this. Obviously, the host and I. Uh, it's also much easier said than done. Um. Obviously, going to a psychiatrist and stating that. You know, you feel a certain way, and you have for X amount of time, and the psychiatrist maybe does state, like, like you said here in this episode. Uh, you know, we've got a medication to help you with some of the symptoms that you're experiencing, but we recommend that you know you come to therapy weekly or biweekly or however often it needs to be mandate.
2: That, that's or, a good sight psych- to psychiatrist one who sure. requires it as a condition of of the medication,
1: right? And I would say that for the client, in many cases, the patient um, taking the medication is kind of the easy part. You go, you fill your prescription. There's some sort of instant gratification there, like, oh wow, yeah, I notice when I take my medicine, it makes me feel a certain way, or I don't feel things I typically do, Um, and there, and that's it's a mindless task. Mm -hmm. There's nothing involved there, Mm -hmm. but the idea of having to really open up to somebody and and we've touched touched on this in several episodes that we've done, but being in that state of vulnerability and all the things that comes with that is a challenge. That's very, very difficult. And so we could understand the urge to simply just take your medication and um, hope that things get better Mm -hmm. versus the, the effort it is going to be required to actually, open up and disclose some things that you may not be comfortable with for a plethora of reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, But that you will continue this, this annual upkeep or this annual maintenance, which Mm -hmm. will take a toll on your life that you then would have to ask yourself, is that toll that I continue to pay, you know, twice a year, annually, whatever, Will that eventually add up to more than it's going to cost me in in cost? I I use metaphorically mm-hmm. to just buckle down and open up and, and really try
2: and absolve
1: some of these some of these things that I haven't for
2: such a long time.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Now I think it's it would we would be remiss if we didn't touch a little bit on <clears throat> the chronically. How can I word this? The chronically depressed Because they're chronically depressed. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Mm. That who, works. Who 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 am I referring to? Those that are actively engaged in counseling therapy may also be actively engaged in receiving medication. And are not making any progress, so they are they are they are they are even on a as you stated, you can get to a point where you are just you're forgetting about trying to dig and you know dig into what's at the root cause, and you're just going to take the medication, and that's just going to uh, you hope maintain some uh, level of balance for you that you can function and not experience what you've been experiencing. But there are people who are not only taking medication, but participating in, in um, therapy and are maintaining themselves in therapy also. Yeah. For years on end. Right. So sometimes I haven't done this in a long time, but I would, Sit and have lunch with the clients And I'd say okay Two minute therapy Two minute therapy session So we would already know what the issue Like there might have been something that Occurred in the house or whatever the case could sure. be Or
1: So um, we've bypassed all the build up right, And right. we can
2: just get to more. More often than not it was someone It was someone With the quote unquote anger problem We all got them. Okay so <laughs> yeah, that yeah. the anger problem, the, the anger problem ones, and so we say, okay, boom, let's get to it. And I said, look, in two minutes, in two minutes, I can save you a lifetime of uh, of, of of spending your money on on therapy for ten years and medication for ten years. Give me a shot. So it's easy with the anger one because I always trick them and.
1: Yeah, and you ever that. get any any one of them to tell you, oh man, screw off and let me enjoy
2: my cheeseburger here? No, no, that's that's, <laughs> that's never happened, and that's without them even knowing who I was. It still never happened. But it would be, you know, it would it would be easy to show them. I mean, the point of doing that was showing them how, just by talking and sharing. And being honest and upfront, we can cut through and save a lot of time, a lot of time, a lot of money by getting to the root of what's right. plaguing us. Right. Okay, that is not to say because I would be the first to tell anyone, especially depending on the circumstance or situation, um, especially if it has to do with um, you know couples and, and what have you. That look, there's times when you would i would say it would be irresponsible of you not to seek outside assistance and within the treatment context even in within ocg when i say outside assistance i mean it would be irresponsible for you to not speak with your counselor about this subject mhm even though yes you should talk to your peers it would be irresponsible to not have that Share this with your counselor so you should, can get some professional insight as to how to move forward, the best way to move forward with this. So even in OCG and even out in the outside world, there, there are cases when that's you know, the case.
3: and, sure. and You
2: got to responsibly make a, a recommendation to people. Um, what they then do with that is a different story how they then utilize that in the context of sharing with their therapist and their counselor is a different story. And a lot of times that determines are you in counseling for a year or are you in counseling for 10 years? Okay. Okay. Yeah. If you're in counseling for 10 years and and, and at the root cause of, you know, of, of your depression is, you know, I lost someone, you know, someone passed away that was very close to me. <clears throat> and And if I ever got wind of that, and 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 it, if it was your mother, your your spouse, your best friend, whomever they were close, 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 uh, you know, a child or what have you. After ten years, I'd say no, there's something else going on here. Yeah. After ten years, not that you ever, 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 quote unquote, get over a a, a close loss.
3: Mm-hmm. Okay,
2: I don't believe there's any such thing as getting over it, but being able to move forward, yeah, live life with it, right and cope right and it no longer dictates and, and prevents you from you know uh moving on with your life but if you are stuck and that's dominating everything that's going on with you this there's, there's a problem that's a problem and we get a lot of people who have loss who've experienced loss and have never dealt with the loss and Finally, being able to talk about it, deal with it, grieve, feel, okay, is you know being in an environment where that can happen. Number one, being feeling safe, etc., is um, I don't even know how to describe it because I mean when when, when I experienced that in 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 Daytop, where the environment was such that you could you could have the opportunity to um, Face these things, whatever they were. Sure. Okay. We're just using loss as an example, but you have the opportunity to finally face it, deal with it, feel it, experience it. De- you know, and I would always tell clients your body is made to deal with any feelings that may arise. That's right. Any feelings that may arise. I don't know anyone who has passed away, no pun intended, from their feelings. No. I know people who have. Using the analogy, passed away from not dealing with their feelings. Sure. Okay. So the list of those is pretty long. Yes. So, I mean, it's our hope that we can create the environment where these things can occur, where you can deal with these things um, and walk out, walk out saying, yeah, when I came in, I was, I was, uh, I was depressed or I was suffering from depression or, you know, I had bouts of depression and I've reached a point where I'm now a one, I've acknowledged it. I've accepted it. And I understand how I can move past it. It's no longer dominating me. No longer rules me. No longer dictates how I feel on a day-to-day basis. Mm -hmm. Because I've gotten to the root and I've looked at the root. I've talked about the root. I've seen the root. I've hugged the root. I've claimed it. I've owned it. whatever applies, depending on what the you know what the issue is you know, right it, you know different things will apply. I once said to a client, You know the hardest thing as a counselor is to convince another human being that they can live their life without using drugs mhm that's very hard to do because that person believes that no I need this in order to you know not feel they they're not articulating it this way but in in essence what they're telling us is no I, I need I use this and I need this so I don't have to cope I don't have to face it I don't have to deal with it. I rather medicated. So trying to convince them otherwise while you have them in front of you is very difficult to -hmm. do to another human being. So imagine trying to convince someone Mm -hmm. who you know from their affect, just from how they present themselves, that they're struggling with depression. But you don't know why. You don't know what's at the root cause. You don't know what's, what has happened to them in their life. You don't know anything. But you got to figure out a way to get them to share and talk to you. And convince and be able to get them to believe and convince them that this, if, if not by itself, can be a significant part of getting you past feeling that way. Boy, that's difficult that's why and that's why people spend a long time in therapy to be honest because it's hard to it's hard for therapists to get people off that spot
1: yeah and people are on that spot because that's their comfort zone yes that's the pocket where they're i'm okay with this and and you might scratch your head as somebody on the outside looking in like you're okay with with being in that space, but your life is riddled with issues and complications as a result of that.
2: And this is where we insert old day top. We will be beating you up. Go ahead. Uh huh. <laughs>
1: and, and you don't believe that going through whatever it is, you might have to go through to deal with this is a better alternative. And I think that speaks to a point that I wanted to make as you were talking that as human beings, we are very good at projecting the the task or the challenge or the fear we put on something to be much greater than it will be in actuality. Mm-hmm. Um, we're our own worst enemy in that kind of sense because we will believe what, you know, all the worst possible scenarios, everything that could go wrong in this situ- situation will um, and allowing that fear that we've created to, to drive the decision not to embark on that journey. And it's funny, you talk about the people who have or who decided to, they will be the ones, oftentimes counselors themselves, telling you, you know, you have no idea how good it's going to feel coming out on the other end and how much worse you are making it out to be. Then it will actually be, and uh, it, it's it's that initial. It's just getting that initial step to be taken, um, where usually the the vast majority of people that I've encountered have said afterwards that wasn't nearly as bad as as I thought it was mm-hmm. going to be. Um, you know, because we allow that fear to kind of dictate what we're going to do.
2: Remember when we talked about. That- the training program in DTOP, <clears throat> How one of the purposes it served was to weed out people who still had issues that they needed to work on. And they were in no position to be helping, yeah, others, I remember, helping yeah. other people until yeah. those issues were worked on, resolved. Sure. And, and This was like the staff training yeah, program you reached, we were talking right, about. Right. You'd reached a point where it was, you know. They believed you had sufficiently had addressed it, that Mm -hmm. it would no, it would not impact your ability to counsel others. Well, today in 2016, I'm told, and I I find this, you know, when I first heard it, I was like, wow, you know, any good uh, therapist program, at you know, at any of the universities before you become fully licensed you have to spend some time yourself in counseling. Oh yeah. As a make sure that, you know, there's nothing lurking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, in your, you know, personal life that may impact your ability to counsel someone in the outside world, That's... in the private sector, et cetera, et cetera. Sure, sure.
1: That's incredibly common. Yeah. And in fact, beyond university and schooling many people you'll speak to who are in the profession will still just as just as a almost like a professional tool or uh, to enable themselves to be as good as they can be in their own profession many therapists see therapists mm-hmm. for you know that maybe that being one of the bigger reasons but one reason for sure for that specifically
2: well now you know that really wouldn't work for us old daytopians because <laughs> we'd be in there with our clipboard saying Psh, you ain't nothing I'll give you a two on a scale of one to five <laughs> five, right. to five being good the great good therapist one being terrible I'm gonna give you a two
3: <laughs>
2: make another appointment with somebody else no but that's uh, <clears throat> that's how it should be that's how it should be so depression and its impact on recovery, uh, what percentage in today's uh, world of people coming in suffering from depression, 60% would you say? Yeah, it's I mean... conservative estimate. Sure. Um, and that's not to say that that wasn't what it was back in the day. It's just that we were, we just never... It just wasn't part of the thinking process, but we you know now that we have the the benefit of history looking back there were many people who could have benefited from uh a, you know daytop was ahead of the curve in other areas i mean you know h i v hit the scene big time in the early eighties, especially in the big cities new york san francisco los angeles chicago philly et cetera right mm mm-hmm. And when when I went into Daytop, I mean they were way ahead of the curve in terms of providing counseling and therapy and groups for peop you know, people who newly found out that they were HIV positive or were at risk, didn't know yet, were waiting on the test result or, or waiting to be tested and things of that nature. And and they had their right. own groups and their own counseling, you know, just
3: right. their own right.
2: they had their own setup. And I was like, Wow and and, and this was still within that 10-year period and when it first hit the scene. So they were ahead of the curve in that. But they had to be dragged into, <laughs> dragged into the mental health realm uh, uh, sure. to, 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 to give people a holistic experience uh, of treatment. Now, granted, which is what we do, because we learn from our experience, is that you cannot treat Everybody. And you certainly cannot treat everybody in the same environment. So that's why we have exclusionary criteria. Right, I mean, right, you, right, right. If you are, you know... You're uh,
1: speaking about, yes, yeah, specific to one program versus another. Right. I Not mean, just there's people who walk the earth who are, who are unable to be treated
2: right. in certain realms. Right. So, I mean... Either you have to know the capabilities of your of your staff. Yeah, and, right the, and the within li- your scope and, and the limits, right? So mm-hmm. we purposely, if someone is has ser- is identified as seriously mentally ill, well, we're not a program that treats that. Sure. Okay. Sure. We treat a primary diagnosis of su- substance use disorder. Mm-hmm. You can have a secondary diagnosis of the mental health. Okay, but it can't be a... It can't a, be your primary. It can't be a primary, and it can't be a major mental health disorder that we don't have the professionals to treat. And also, you don't want to... Some populations can't be mixed. Right. Okay, so you're not going to put someone who's suffering from schizophrenia with someone who's just suffering from you know, mild depression. Yeah, exactly. Okay? So, we do have exclusionary criteria, and we have our excellent clinicians whose job it is to assess people and determine whether or not it's a suitable you know if they if they have a mental health uh diagnosis that it's something that we can uh concurrently uh treat treat yeah um, while they're you know in treatment for substance abuse so or manage might be a better word sure okay and they might be seeing uh, a mental health professional outside um, and, you know, we collaborate and manage them. So that's where we are in 2016.
1: Well said, well said. I think that's a, it's a great topic to cover, especially for our target audience and our listeners uh, because it's prevalent. You know, it is, it is prevalent. You're not going to walk into any program, to my knowledge, no. um, countrywide and not see
2: no.
1: this as a presenting issue.
2: So what I want to close with is um, I'm, I'm going to be submitting to the DSM folks uh, Uh-oh. on the DSM-5 now. So one, for, I'm going to be submitting the six. for the DSM-6 uh my uh, my own um diagnosis that i came up with uh it falls under a depression diagnosis okay um and oh here it here it comes we've been waiting for this the uh it's the m s t s s diagnosis the the my sports team sucks syndrome yeah okay okay get it in there so because what we go through when we have gone 40 years and 50 years of, of, of futility <laughs> and, and our teams. And I'm talking to you, the New York Knicks. Yeah. For goodness <laughs> sakes, 1973 being the last time he won the NBA championship. How old was I in 1973? Eight? <laughs> no. Seven? I don't know. Something like that. For goodness sakes. And they, and they haven't won the championship yet. Who else? Am I might upset that he's, he's on a roll. He's on a roll. Um, but yeah. So you know, every year when the NBA season starts, and you know they start with such hope and faith, or maybe the season starts and your hope and faith has already been dashed because they didn't do nothing during the off season to improve the team to the point where you could have some hope and faith throughout the year. <laughs> So you go through things. So I, I feel it should become an official diagnosis for, well, for people throughout the country in various markets that experience. We're going to have to put the host to the, uh, the challenge or task then to go
1: beyond that. If you are going to look for uh, submitting this for entry into the DSM-6, you need your criteria. Normally, there's like 8 to 10 qualifying criteria, and the DSM will state if the patient meets 6 out of the 10 or whatever, 5 out of the 10, 7 out of the 9, then they are eligible to qualify for such a diagnosis. So in the show two weeks from now, I expect you to come up with a list of the 9 to 10 criteria and what we can do. As I'm certain two weeks from now, my 49ers will be one and eight, currently at one and six. Oh, no, we'll have a bye week, so maybe one and seven. You can then throw the, the ten criteria or however many it is to me one at a time and based on the yeses or nos I give you, see if I could be potentially the first human being on earth to qualify for your uh, your diagnosis. I could
2: name four, three or four right, right now. <laughs> right, right off the bat. Mood swings, irritability. <laughs> Um, delusions, uh, and I say delusions, I mean false beliefs. So you be, you believe that you know, based on moves your team made in the off season, this is the okay. year we're going to compete. Yeah. This is the year we're going to get deep into the make a run. Yeah, and it doesn't happen. Okay. So yeah, I, I have no problem coming up with some criteria. Do it. It's as
1: as uh, if my wife is out there listening. She would probably say. I could probably check the box for yes on every single one of those you just listed right off the top of your head when the team is not sucking, if you will. So, well said. Well done. Two weeks from now, we'll revisit it. Uh, We are past the top of the hour, but great topic. We do see we've got some callers on hold, Uh, A, just listening, or B, wanting to participate in the Recovery sports Time segment, which is coming up next. So, we're going to take a quick music break, and we will get to you all on the other side. Bye.
0: up next is ocg radio's recovery support time where our hosts provide support and guidance for your recovery related questions and issues recovery support time where it's our time to help you
2: Welcome back to Roach on Recovery. 646 564.
1: Yes, I knew I'd catch a slip in one of these shows. Yep, you caught me. You caught
2: me off guard.
1: 646
2: 564 9909 is the number. Uh, I'm going to be on point the next two shows. You're not going to catch me. <laughs> We'll see about that. All right. Let's get to some X-File questions. They're piling up. Uh, Melissa from Monterey. Do you think every person with substance abuse issues is considered to have the disease addiction? Oh, boy. Well,
1: it's a million-dollar controversial question right there in, in society today.
2: Officially called the disease concept. The disease model. Disease model. Um, I'll say this. Uh, I, I, don't, I think we're very close. I've said this before. We're not too far away from it. Officially, the powers that be, and when I say that, I mean like the American Medical Association and those folk um, formally uh, listing. Um, the various addictions um, as diseases because of the uh, changes that occur in the brain. Um, It's going to, you know, regardless of what they do, it's going to meet up with resistance from folks who have different views upon it. Um, Ultimately it doesn't matter because the way it's going to be listed is that it is a disease that it is one of the few diseases that the sufferer can actually cure themselves. That's the language, by the way. That's right. One of the few diseases where the sufferer can actually cure themselves through their own, you know. Well, the language,
1: own... the language specifically was that the disease can be arrested mm-hmm. one day at a time mm-hmm. through
2: human choice. There you go. So pretty soon we'll be parroting that. (laughs) That's right. Uh, Tiffany from Redwood City. What are the unique needs of a pregnant woman with substance abuse disorders? Well, in California, there are so few, I can count them on both hands, programs that exist for uh, pregnant women that have – drug addiction issues.
1: And can we interject right there for this question to mm. ask you and your experience in uh, running a program, essentially in knowing the politics behind that, why do you believe that is?
2: So the way it's funded. They just could not get around for... I, I mean, it's just unbelievable in terms of common sense. It, they could not get around how to fund a uh, properly those type of programs where Either the woman was pregnant, and obviously she's going to give birth, right The child is going to continue to be with the with the mother um in the envir- in the treatment environment and it was like, okay, so how do we you know with with all the intersecting regulations and laws that govern children now being in the presence of adults and so on and so forth how do those how do they make it work? They couldn't figure out how to make it work mm in the best interest of the person, the mother. They couldn't figure out how to make it work. It's a shame. That is a shame. It's absolute shame. Really? It's, imagine this. The mother is a felon. <laughs> right? I have to laugh when I think of this. Yeah. The mother is a felon. The child is born. The child cannot be in the presence of a felon <laughs> while in the treatment program. Because there are other mothers in the program, right? Right. right. Well, also, you know, uh, high probability of committed felony crime. Sure. Right. Are you kidding me? I don't have a, a, a soft spot in my heart for bureaucrats in the way they think when it comes to uh, drug treatment. Okay. Next one. Sasha from Santa Cruz. What role does religion play in treatment, if any? What role does religion play in treatment, if any? I got two answers for you. One, none. And two, it can play whatever role that you want it to play. But I do have a cautionary, cautionary piece of advice. God God helps those who help themselves. We experience oftentimes, especially back in back in the day, and even when I was a client, people coming into treatment. And finding religion for various reasons, some good, you know, true Mm -hmm. reasons, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Or they were involved in religion on the outside and veered off as a result of their addiction. And as a part of their recovery attempts, they're re-involving religion back into their life. You follow me? Yeah. Okay. Nothing wrong with that. 100% for that. Then there are those who use you know you know getting involved in religion as a way to get out of the house. You know what? Have at it. Don't care about that either. However, I was always um, I always wanted to make sure to let those people know that religion in and of itself is not going to be the be-all and cure-all it would have been the be all and cure all when you were the situation. Exactly. Right. So it is definitely for those who are serious and those who are true about their intentions It is a definite asset because, you know, it provides some guidance, some moral uh, centering and all of that positive stuff. And those who just use it as a means to get out of the house, eventually what doesn't come out in the wash will come out in the rinse. (laughs) That's right. But in terms of whether or not you're going to succeed in your recovery or not, it plays no – ultimately, it doesn't play a role whether you succeed or not. Whether you succeed or not, it's going to be based on your decisions and your commitment. I don't want any calls from any pastors (laughs) that are close to OCG. All right, one, one other one real quick before we hit the phones. Um. Let's see. Jasper from Redding, way up north, Redding, California. How will I know I am ready for a new relationship after recovery? See, if this person was asking this question on the phone, I would answer the question with a question. How do you know when after recovery arrives?
1: Yeah, what is after recovery? Yeah.
2: It's really a trick question, but I would ask it anyway. Nobody knows when you're ready for a new relationship after recovery, whatever after recovery means. you Each person has to determine for themselves. Because as we've said, I, I've said, I don't know if you've Coastline, what I've said, but I've always said that no one knows when love is going to <laughs> confront them. find its way. Yeah, when love <laughs> yeah. is going to confront them. Yeah. So it's hard to say. You know, you have to know if when, if love confronts you, whether where depending on where you're at, and if you're honest with your assessment of where you're at, whether or not how you then proceed with that love that's confronting you. It's hard to answer that, other than when with how I answered it. All right. Let's go to the phones. Let's go to, uh, JT, who's suffering from San Francisco. <laughs> so he's suffering right now from that loss. <laughs> what were they up? Three, three in the ninth. The, oh,
1: the you're still talking about that. We're more into the 49ers oh, okay. right now.
5: All right.
2: How can we help you JT?
5: Hey guys. Um, I'm calling to ask you um, what is a pink cloud, pertaining to recovery.
2: Hmm. Have no idea. Never heard that expression. No, yeah, nor have I.
5: Huh? Where did okay. Where did you I, hear it? Well, I read it on a on a website about uh, recovery from from crystal meth, and from what I remember, it it mentioned something about it being kind of a, a grace period where you when you when you First, get sober. That it's kind of like this. Uh, how do I put it? Like a Disneyland of sorts, where you just kind of you feel really good about everything. You're happy that you're and not like using. Like a honeymoon
2: period, kind of thing.
5: Huh? Like a honeymoon period, yeah. Okay. And I just, I mean, that was the term that they used was pink cloud. So
2: yeah, I've never heard that expression, but uh, yeah, we don't we don't allow honeymoon periods. Because <laughs> no honeymoon period recovery. We got to get right at it. <laughs> Boom. we got to get right to work. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> but well, the, here's a the connection you can make with that, though, in terms of methamphetamine. Okay, mm-hmm. There is a period once, when a person stops, if they've been using meth on a regular basis and they stop using, there is a period of adjustment physically that they go through where the body has to readjust its biorhythms, the appetite has to readjust. The sleeping patterns have to readjust. All of those mm-hmm. things in concert with each other have to readjust. And that can take okay. anywhere from 30 days to 90 days, depending on how significant the use was. Right. Okay. okay. And then after that, and see, we call that the second trimester, is when you might enter a quote-unquote honeymoon period of, when you're feeling good. Much better than when you first entered recovery. Okay. You know what I'm saying? You're starting to get. You're sleeping better. You're eating better. The physical aspects of what was going on are have subsided. Mm-hmm. So that may be a honeymoon period at that time.
5: So you're saying like you know? So from, okay, 30 to 90 days, your body's just kind of readjusting. Um, e- kind detoxifying. Of, yeah,
3: yeah
2: okay. a lot of stuff is going on.
5: It's
3: okay. trying
2: to get it's trying to realign itself back to where it should be in in all different facets mentally, spiritually, emotionally, physically you name it
5: mm-hmm. okay makes sense
2: so we call that the first trimester, and we did a whole show on that a year ago or something
4: okay all right all right, I appreciate it, brothers
2: all right, no problem thank you all right thank you all right, all right. bye-bye. But pink cloud. We got some homework. Got to yeah, that up. That's right. Never heard that expression. Nor have I. That's what's being used out there. We gotta be on top of it.
1: <laughs> exactly we've right. we
2: got to be current with our lingo. We
1: can't be hit so. off guard by the callers.
2: <clears throat> All right, who do we got? Let's go to oh my goodness. Another one. Let's go to Jose from it says here from the great San Francisco. <laughs> blowing blowing a three three run lead in the ninth inning. <laughs> how can we help you, sir? How you doing?
4: Um Good. I had a question about how does one deal with um maybe their children using while one while one's in recovery.
2: Ah, uh, that's a touchy one. Yeah. How yeah, what's is. the age?
4: Um teenagers fifteen um uh, fourteen, like I'm, got a feeling that they might be getting into you know marijuana, and from my past experience, that's how you know experimenting starts off, and just want to know how to relate i mean talk to them and relate to them and instead of just going in hard hard on them?
2: Um, So we touched on this in a show probably in our first year, right? Yeah, I believe so. So you have a parent who has experienced drug use and is engaging in recovery and they have teenage children who are either using or experimenting, etc. cetera. And how do we, how do we address them, confront it, bring that, you know, have, have a conversation with them while we're still in the midst of our process? <clears throat> well, one of the first things I would say is that, What sometimes inhibits people in this position is their concern about being called a hypocrite. Who are you to tell me when look at what you've done? And what I would say to you is that you get that out of your mind. You get that out of your mind because all that is, all that is, is a, is a guilt ploy. Yep. To back you off them. And you have to just walk in acknowledging, knowing, look, well, you ready? I know what I did. I know what I did. But what rules, what rules is what you're doing now. Now, does it impact the manner in which you approach the subject? Absolutely. Because if you've never done it, you've never been there, you've never engaged in that lifestyle, then you're not. Hobbled by uh, your experience, and depending on you know what school of parenting you come from, you can come at them you know from many different angles. But when you have that experience in your background, <clears throat> one of the things you are aware of is is how would you want to be confronted with that situation if it was you. What would turn you off? Mm. What would open your ears up? What would what would keep you open to the conversation? Because obviously, that's what you want. Your ultimate goal is you want to keep them open to the conversation. Exactly. So yeah. here's my one-sentence advice, and if you don't understand it when I'm done, tell me, and I'll break it down even further. Okay. Focus on the goal, not on the process. Mm. Got it. the the goal is I like you know that. what the goal is i want yeah. to tr- try and make sure that yeah. if they're experimenting if they're using if they're trying i want them to stop that's my goal yeah don't get wrapped up in the small details yeah. you want them to talk to you you want them to be upfront with you you want them to if they're using you want them to tell you yeah and be able to be honest about it And be able to talk okay. with them about it. Keeping in the back of your mind the ultimate goal is to talk them out of that behavior. Yeah. Right.
4: Well,
2: using, you your, using yourself as a positive example, by the way. Don't forget that. A positive example. Not a negative example. A positive example. Got it. Okay. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Thank you. We've always said, "touchy, touchy, touchy."
1: Very much so, and we did go into it in pretty good detail
2: in that show. But mm-hmm. that's a that's a tough situation. A lot of variables. You know, we don't know what the, all the circumstances, all the details are that are attached to the circum to the situation and so the parent who who does know that knows best and no one knows their children best than than the parents or the persons who raise them whomever that may be so they got to use all of that information to 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 go at them but go at them in a way that they don't push them away no matter how much they hurt from you know either learning suspecting or, or finding out that hey, you know, my young one is is in, is is doing drugs, or my young one's experimenting, and so on and so forth. Nothing you can do about that right now. Nothing you can do about that right now, because unless you're straight, and I don't mean that literally, but if you, unless you're taking care of yourself and and making sure that you're on the right track, you cannot help somebody else, even if it's your own child.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You can lay some groundwork. However, you can certainly lay some groundwork. They come to visit you. If you're in a program, they come to visit, you can start laying some groundwork. We don't want to see no fisticuffs. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> no dukes breaking out in the dining room. Father and son, mother and daughter, fighting, throwing food. And I can't say I've ever actually seen that. I'm just... Uh, It's just a figment of my imagination. You never know. Let's go to, what do we got? Sean from Las Vegas, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you. Uh,
4: My question is, uh, how effective is a monthly injection shot of Vivitrol for alcoholism?
2: Uh, From my understanding, it's very effective. You know, like the percentage or? uh, It is uh, extremely, extremely high. Highly successful. Perfect. So let me just add something to that. Okay. Other than just the pure stats, do do you know? So let's say I didn't know the stats. Do you want to know how else I would know that it was very effective? How? Because... Some counties And or states Are choosing to For people who don't even have The wherewithal Or the money or insurance or whatever Are choosing to pay for it To pay for the Vivitrol Because they did a cost benefit analysis Versus that person going to the emergency room Mm -hmm. Versus just Putting them on the Vivitrol And they say, wait a second, we can save thousands of dollars by, and the Vivitrol is very expensive, by the way. But we can save thousands of dollars by paying for it ourselves and giving it to them without cost versus them going to the emergency room, which costs four or five, six times the amount. Right. That tells me how effective it is. Sounds good. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Right, bye bye. Bye bye. How are we doing on time, sir? We
1: are we are doing excellent on time. In fact, we've got about twelve, twelve, thirteen minutes here.
2: Okay. Got some more X files I want to get to, but let me hit this call real quick. <clears throat> Absolutely. Joaquin from South San Francisco, a little too close to San Francisco, but we'll let him slide. Welcome to the show.
4: <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, I remember I called him last time about like four or five weeks ago, and it was getting close to the end of the show, but try to go off this question again. Um, having some type of behaviors when I was using back in my addiction and get sober. Um, start doing good, and then after so long of being sober, going back to those, you um, say, behaviors I was using when, uh, or having those behaviors, uh, but not being in an addiction anymore, but having those same type of, like, behaviors, being, like, angry right. real big and very emotional. and uh, Yes,
2: I remember. Yes, I remember.
4: So what, what 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 would your um, input on like something like that like well, I thought like being sober for so long like you develop like new behaviors and you keep those behaviors but I like backslided into having those behaviors when I had in my addiction.
2: All right, you you went you went church on us. You used the church term backsliding. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, oh, yeah. let me you I got
4: baptized uh, last Sunday.
2: Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. So let me ask you a couple of questions. Oh, wow. You said that. So you 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 you've been in recovery. You've been sober for a period of time, and you find yourself sometimes engaging in the behaviors that you did while you were using not you're not not you're not using but you find yourself sometimes engaging in those behaviors yes okay so what goes through your own mind when you see feel and, and experience yourself going through those behaviors
4: Oh, uh like failure, um, not being, a, like, not being uh, physically capable capable of doing things that I used to be able to do, um, family problems. Um, just heard recently that my sister, she's, uh, her uh, baby daddy kicked her out, choked her out and kicked her out on the streets. So now she's out there with her three-year-old son, which is his son, too, and her eight-year-old daughter. And, I don't know, I, I, it's like I try to focus on my recovery and, you know, thinking of good things that's going on with me, but it's hard to not think about that stuff that's going on out there that I have no control over or can't, can't help, help helpless.
2: But you don't have to uh, bear that by yourself. So it would be impossible for you to not be weighted by thinking about, you know, what's going on with your sister. Would be, you wouldn't be a human being if you didn't spend your time, you know, thinking about that, worrying about that. And, you know, what, you know, how is she doing? What's going on? Is she getting any help? All of that stuff.
4: Yeah.
2: Okay. But my question is, what does that do to you? Does that throw you off your game?
4: It definitely does. It,
2: it, In what ways?
4: Like not being able to focus on what I need to do, what I need to get done. That's why I use the term backtrack. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm going backwards sometimes and then go forward and going backwards and something like these emotional feelings... Going back and forth just with that kind of messes me up too. And these me feeling like empty inside. Even though I know I'm doing good, but I should be doing more. I'm just not. You know going what to
2: I think? You, you know what I think?
4: What's that?
2: I think you're being too hard on yourself. I think you're experiencing life sober. You're going through feelings sober. You're experiencing life circumstances with family family members sober. There's no crutch to lean on. So you have to feel the feelings, experience the feelings, deal with the feelings, and continue to Every day, do what you got to do.
4: So, how would you suggest that I deal with these feelings?
2: You are dealing with
4: them. Positive. That's that's
2: that's that's my point. Is that you're not giving yourself enough credit? I don't even think that you realize that you are actually dealing with them. You just articulated to us your feelings, emptiness. you didn't say this word, but to a certain extent, you know, loneliness. You're, you're like, almost like you're having to deal with the situation by yourself. Yeah. You're telling us how you feel. Which tells me that, you know, if you're able to articulate how you feel, then, you know, even if you're standing by yourself in a phone booth, you're able to acknowledge to yourself what you're what you're experiencing and what you're feeling. That's part of the secret. Uh-huh. To be so aware is like to be alive.
4: I where I just check in with myself.
2: To be aware is to be alive. If you, can, if, you can, if you are aware of what you're feeling and what you're going through, even if the only person you're talking to is yourself for that moment in time, okay, that allows you to be able to then control what you then do. That's what I meant when I said that I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit.
4: Like, it's usually one of the credit-giving time for myself. I try to not give myself credit and try to push myself in another direction, it's like pushing and keep pushing without having those moments because at times I really don't feel like I deserve it. I feel like I should be doing more, and I know I'm doing good right now, but I just... Don't feel like I'm never doing enough.
2: Well, well, let me ask you something. You clean and sober. Yes, I am. So everything that you've experienced, everything that you are experiencing currently at this moment, that's going on in your life, you're still doing the right thing it may not feel i mean you're going through a period of time right now where it may not feel good but you're you're coping with those feelings okay uh-huh. and you say and you say you say that you don't want to give yourself credit and this is the thing about addicts they are their own worst enemy they have no problem they have no problem putting themselves down they have no problems, you know, you know being all negative about themselves when it comes time to acknowledge truth about something that they're doing that's correct, that's right, that's right on path. It's like no, I can't do that uh, equal time. Like
4: when i do something for somebody else and. They give me some type of gratitude about it. I just don't know how to accept it. It just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel normal for me. All
2: right. Well, I'm going to give you a tip. You do something for somebody else and they give you some gratitude, your only answer has got to be thank you. I appreciate that.
4: <laughs>
2: well, and I put, to and then, do that. And so we say, Even with right? that,
4: I don't feel like I'm giving enough uh to, Enough to them, for them to know that I acknowledge their thank you.
2: Uh, Mr. Producer, how much time we got? Mm-hmm. We still have a couple of minutes here, three, four minutes. Okay. You know, you know what? I've just come to the conclusion after uh, our short little conversation. Uh huh. Mr. Joaquin, um, you spend too much time up in your head. I spend a
4: lot of time in my head. Huh? I spend, I spend a lot of time in my head.
2: Yeah, that, that's what I just figured out. You spend too much time up in your head.
4: So definitely you, that's a bad thing. I know that. Yes,
2: that. yes, I can tell that's a bad thing because when you cannot accept acknowledgement from other people and gratitude from other people and you start twisting it around, okay, you, that automatically tells me that you're in your head because it's got to be equal it's got to be equal balance if if you can accept someone telling you when you're doing wrong and you can accept someone telling you that you're doing wrong and you could acknowledge it and make correction you should be able to accept someone telling you when you hey when you're doing a good job when you're doing right and accept it and say thank you very much I appreciate it for you acknowledging that
4: no, that's, that's all it takes just a simple thank you very much
2: thank you very much I appreciate that
4: wow that's my right there I just never felt like that was enough
2: well let me ask you a question if you did something for someone and they said to you thank you very much I mean no they, and you said they, and they said hey, thank, I, hey Joaquin thank you I appreciate what you did wouldn't you appreciate them saying thank you yes I, so, I'm not so used to you. people saying
4: thank you to me That's what I'm saying I, I
2: want to <laughs> express
4: how thankful I am For them thanking me <laughs>
2: Well my hope, my hope for you Is that eventually you will spend time Around more people that have good manners And have <laughs> and have more gratitude For anything that you do for them That's good And that they will thank you And you will acknowledge it by saying Thank you very much I appreciate it Okay But in the that meantime
4: means, means, Sorry going to church more often
2: Hey <laughs> You got to do what you got to do. In the meantime, in the meantime, if you're left with only yourself, okay, you have to continually acknowledge the progress and the good that you are doing on a day-to-day basis to yourself, despite what may be going on around you.
4: Okay. I didn't stop being in my head so much.
2: (laughs) Stop being in your head. Unless you're reading a book.
4: How do you do that?
2: Actually I just gave you the answer. Read a book.
4: <laughs> Read a book, okay.
2: And I'm dead okay, serious. I I will do that. For people who like to spend a lot of time in their head intellectualizing their feelings and intellectualizing everything that's going on around them, okay, one one way to help stop that to kind of break that cycle, I always tell them, you know what? Do some reading. That'll occupy your mind in in a more constructive manner than intellectualizing your your life experience. Okay. Read the newspaper. Read magazines. Whatever. Read.
4: I got plenty of NAA NA, books and regular books. There you and go. Fantasy books in my drawer. Start breaking those out. Well, oh.
2: Thank well, you. We and appreciate... I
4: definitely appreciate your time, brother.
2: Well, we appreciate you calling back.
4: <laughs> no problem. All right, Finally thank found you. Some time. All, right,
2: all right, good man. stuff. All
4: right.
1: It's funny because we touched on it in the show about the the fear in making being our own worst enemy and making things. It's and it's like there it is all over again. Like, mm-hmm. wow, you're you're being proactive. You're calling in to. Uh, to a resource that you have here, a show when you're needing to express something and you still maintain your sobriety and what he's going through by what he described is a lot for anybody to go through. And wow, we,
2: we can continue to tell them and tell them and tell them, but. And it's very rare to hear somebody when you use the word, you know, I feel empty. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very rare to hear someone articulate that. Right. I agree. You know what I'm saying? I so, agree. Um, Got to be more, uh, I'll I'll never forget the first time I heard some uh, someone say this about you know addicts is that like we're our own worst enemies. Like we, you know, we're so self-destructive. Yeah. When it comes to uh, our our own selves, and you know, flipping that around, you know, is is a challenge for some people, even even when they're you know advanced into their recovery process. That's true. All right, sir.
1: Wrap her up. If you've got nothing else to say, then forever hold your peace.
2: Um, I saw a foot posted on Facebook okay. today by Charlie Devlin, uh, uh, recounting the anniversary of Woodstock. Yeah. Up up in the Swan Lake area, Bethel, New York. Bethel, okay. New York, to be exact, which was a couple of miles down from the Swan Lake facility. Okay. So um, he was commenting on his post how at the time that Woodstock was happening, people were coming to the Swan Lake facility, the Woodstockers, and actually going, jumping into the lake, you know, going into the lake. To to swim, and do whatever. And I commented on his post that when I first got up to the lake, I was about maybe three or four months in the house. This was when, the 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 winter thaw had broken, so it must have been around Mayish. Alrighty, right, that they took us in a van down to where the site was that Woodstock was held, and you know, okay. let us soak it in a little bit. Yeah, and then said, you know get get the hell back to the facility, get back <laughs> on your job functions.
1: That's right, that's right. <laughs> funny, funny um, enough. Great. Well, another great show. Uh, we look forward to talking to everybody two weeks from now. We encourage people who need their weekly hankering of Rotron Recovery to hit the archives. There's plenty of shows to check out. We appreciate everybody who continues to call in just to listen and or participate. We really do appreciate the ongoing support. It's a big reason why we do the show.
2: Happy Halloween.
1: Happy Halloween. It will be Halloween before then. Uh, we will see the rest of you guys in November. Have a safe couple of weeks, the productive 8th, couple of weeks. November 8th. November 8th, and a fun couple of weekends. Bye. Yeah.
0: Our show for this evening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on BlogtalkRadio.com forward OCG Radio. Like us, friend us, and follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash And on Twitter at OCG You can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage.